Welcome to another horrifying episode of Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater. On the marquee this week is 1974's Black Christmas. Join us right after we get back from checking if the calls are in fact coming from inside the house. All that right after this ad we have no control over. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back in Yuletide greetings of murder and mayhem. I'm Ashley Coffin, joined as always by my co-host in terror, Bill Bria. Bill, darling, how are you this holiday season? Ashley, it's me, Billy. <laughs> Billy Agnes. <laughs> Don't tell them what we did, Ashley. <laughs> oh, you creep. Go stick your tongue in a stocket. <laughs> the Mormon Tabernacle requires uh, annual... Uh, uh, obscene phone call. <laughs> uh, so if you didn't know, we are here to talk about Black Christmas um, right after we jump into the news this week with Bill. Bill, what do you have for us from the Necronomicon of Horror? Well, we got some exciting stuff coming on down the line. Of course, it's the end of the year, which is uh, when a lot of great things are coming out, but also a lot of great things are being revved up for 2023. Can you imagine? We're going into 23 now. 2022 yeah. is almost over. This is crazy. I can't. Uh, and uh, right away, I believe dropping in mid-January somewhere, uh, January 15th, in fact, will be the new uh, live action TV series premiere of The Last of Us. Which <gasps> I uh, saw the trailer the other the day. The trailer is out now. If you've played the games, you know that this gets in some seriously dark horror territory if you're a fan of you know the romero zombie films if you're a fan of yes. 28 days later if you're a fan of any sort of like resident evil-y kind of monster-y stuff then this is for you my only concern because it looks incredibly perfect in terms of visual translation of the game to the screen it's just that it does seem to be the exact same story in the first game. And I wonder if it is that. I don't know. I haven't really you know, I guess there's not too much information that's really come out yet about what the storyline is per se. But from what everything we've seen so far, it seems like it's just the first game again. So hopefully there will be some surprises in store for those of us who've already played both games <laughs> uh, because it's going to be kind of bummer. Because one of the aspects of The Last of Us games is that the acting in the games is so good. So when you're watching those cinematics and, and going through the story with them, you're really already just, just as engaged as if you were watching a movie or, or TV series already. So, yeah, hopefully this will have, you know, some additional stuff in there, or some different twists or something that uh, that will make it worthwhile. But so far, it looks great. Yeah, um, I'm I'm hoping so, because, you know, The Walking Dead 
I remember being bright eyed and bushed when that show started. And I know mm -hmm. a lot of people still liked it, but I, you know, I couldn't. And I don't usually stop watching shows, yeah. but I was done. I was done, done yeah. when Rick left. And that was even struggling to keep watching. Wow. I think it was this season. Maybe it was season two that killed me when they were looking for that little girl for 15 episodes. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> stop saying her name. Oh, so dear. I'm hoping for. You know, we just have so much. And then they had, what, five spinoff shows or whatever the hell. 17, and it, it feels it, like. And it seemed yeah. like everything went zombie for a minute. And even um, what that one director who directed the Superman movies got involved. Snyder, with Zack Snyder, yeah. Zack Snyder's, got, like, everybody was doing it. We had the World War Z, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I did, too. But I'm more hopeful about this because it's HBO and it's, it's mature adult. And I want to see some some zombies. So yeah. some interesting, different some, zombies, some fungi people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that. And it, on the same topic of great trailers that that promise a lot and hopefully their promise will be delivered. There is, of course, the uh, superlative uh, cocaine bear. Uh, which <gasps> oh, you I saw absolutely the trailer need to watch that trailer as well. Oh, my God, it already. looks so good. Uh, There's so many famous people like. No, yeah. I wouldn't like besides Ray, Ray Liotta, you know, God rest his soul. Yeah. I can't believe, first of all, that's his, uh, is that his last film? Technically? It's, if not, it's, it's got to be obviously close to it. So, I mean, wow. he joins a, a, a time honored tradition of great actors doing really goofy genre films for their last film, like Orson Welles' voice in Transformers, the movie and stuff yeah. like that. So uh, crazy. God bless him. Um, yeah. So definitely watch that trailer if you haven't yet. Uh, in terms of more concrete news, uh, there's an interesting movie that caught my eye um, in terms of its title and premise. It's called Operation Blood Hunt. Uh, oh. And it is not just a horror movie, but a werewolf movie being <gasps> described as a mix between Predator, Underworld, and The Dirty Dozen. Uh, filming recently wrapped in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, it's supposedly going to feature custom-built mechanical werewolves with fully animated faces, all done by remote control. Uh, and uh, the storyline is about a... Uh, prolific expert of the occult, the Reverend, who accompanies a ragtag group of military rejects to a remote South Pacific island to investigate the disappearance of Marine units stationed there in 1944, said to be at the hands of the Japanese Imperial Army. Upon speaking with the island's inhabitants, the group discovers the Marines had actually been massacred by a group of lycanthropes. So, what? Um, yeah, I mean, it could be could be rad. I mean, it does sound very close to dog soldiers in tone, uh, yeah. which if you don't know dog soldiers, that is the Neil Marshall 2002 werewolf movie of uh, a bunch of soldiers who are I uh, do like who they have to shore up in this um aban not abandoned but like remote uh location uh surrounded by a group of werewolves so so um, good yeah hopefully it might be rad um some business news uh those of us who are fans of the works of Mike Flanagan uh can note that he and uh producer Trevor Macy have signed a multi-year series deal with Amazon Studios so if you've liked what he's been doing at Netflix in the last couple of years, like The Haunting of Hill, oh, oh, the Haunting of Hill House, uh, The Haunting of Blind Manor, The Midnight Club, um, and of course uh, stuff like Hush and um, Before I Wake, then I guess his new home is going to be Amazon instead of Netflix. Which, Wonder what happened. Yeah, which uh, I'm well, I'm probably I don't know if this is true or not, so I'm speculating here, but I know Flanagan was always kind of angry that <laughs> Netflix. Uh, you know, in its in its infinite unwisdom, uh, doesn't like the idea of presenting um, special features. They don't like the idea of uh, doing physical releases of their content. 
Um, hmm. I mean, look what's just happened with Glass Onion. Glass Onion, the new Ryan Johnson murder mystery movie, just did boffo box office business over Thanksgiving week. And uh, Netflix is like, oh, we don't want to make more money. We're not going to put it back in theaters, even though theater owners were literally begging them to. Because they were like, Weird. you have a hit on your hands. Why don't you just allow it to be a hit? And they were like, no, it's just an ad for our service. So uh, fuck Netflix is what I'm saying. Um, oh. And so did, and Flanagan said the same thing, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> not not literally. Don't I'm not libeling him. But uh, yeah, no, he, he's <laughs> uh, he's gone over to Amazon. So we'll see what they have in store for us there. And on a similar note, um, if you're like me, a fan of the very odd, very unique works of uh, filmmakers, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, um, their latest is Something in the Dirt. And they also made Spring, which is their masterpiece. Oh, I love Spring. And uh, The Endless and uh, Revolution or Resolution. Um, they have just signed a uh, 10 film uh, deal with uh, V Channels and XYZ. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're going to produce at least 10 films. And of course, some of them are going to be made by them as well. Uh, so they have more uh, more work coming on down the line, which is great to know because they've always thrived in the indie space because their films aren't exactly uh, mainstream. But then again, as you may know, Ash, they're also in the Marvel world, you know, as, as the directors of some of the Disney Plus series. They direct oh, cool. episodes of Moon Knight as well as um, Loki, and they're going to be involved with Loki season two. So cool. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're going to continue. The on. resolution was that the the two guys in the cabin yes, in the woods. Two guys in the cabin. Oh, yeah. That movie was so good. Yeah. And I didn't. That ending blew me away. Have you seen the Endless? Because it is Loki a sequel. I'll have to. I, I can't see remember it, but I'll have to see For if. Sure. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and then uh. On a on a less exciting note to me, but I have I feel like I have this has become one of the things that I have to mention on the podcast every time, and they just it, we're now in this weird, uh, what's to call it um, trend of yeah. uh, <laughs> terrible low budget or no budget um, public domain fairy tale horror movie adaptations. Yeah. So who's next? Fucking Bambi, Bambi the no. Reckoning. Uh, no, <laughs> I I watched the trailer for Gale. Oh yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, Gale. Got Fucking Gale. The Grinch is is out now. I forget what they're calling that one. The the Grinch horror movie. Oh yeah, I just saw a picture for that the other I'm day. I'm sure I mentioned too. it in the last podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and now crazy. we have Bambi the Reckoning. Um, as long if it's gonna be Bambi killing a bunch of hunters, I'm here for it. <laughs> look, honestly, I don't think it should be Bambi at all. I think it should be the mom. So Bambi's mom's revenge, right? Bam- you know, zombie Bam- zombie Bambi mom. That that traumatized a lot of kids growing up over the decades. So why not just get that revenge going anyway? According to one of the producers of the film, uh, it'll be an incredibly dark retelling of the 1928 story we all know and love. Um, apparently, they used uh, some inspiration from Netflix's The Ritual, uh, the David Bruckner horror film, which is I great. I love you The Ritual. Check that out. Yeah, um, yeah. And that, uh, that, that's what they've taken inspiration from for their version of Bambi in terms of how it'll what? look. Uh, Bambi oh, will be okay. a vicious killing machine that lurks in the wilderness. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> we'll see about Let's that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Cocaine bear. <laughs> cocaine Bambi. Uh, yeah. Cocaine Bambi. I'll take Cocaine Bear a hundred times over this. I'd like the crossover between Cocaine Bear oh, and Bambi. <laughs> yeah, i like them to meet up. Awesome. <laughs> um, this isn't really a great thing to mention on a podcast because it's a visual thing, but Bruce Campbell's shared some uh, more uh, first look images of Evil Dead Rise, which is going to drop on April 21st of next year. I'm just really wait. looking forward to it because it's a new Evil Dead film. I don't Me know too. what to expect. It's going to be a like demons. Yeah, it's going to be demons too, essentially. Yeah, and I, demons two is like my favorite. I have a hard time deciding if I like demons two or demons one. It's a hard better. 
It does, like sometimes I, I it'll be one way and sometimes Stevens it'll be the other way. The whole movie theater thing, I just love I that premise. And it gets a but, little crazier than the second one, I think. Yeah. With the anyway, helicopter. <laughs> hopefully Evil Dead Rise will live up to at least Demons 2. Um, and that's coming out in April. So if you want to see what those uh, pictures of the cast and um, stuff look like, check out Bruce Campbell's Twitter or just Google it. I'm sure you can find it. <laughs> and then finally, I came across this, which is really intriguing. Uh, a new slasher film um, directed by Eric Bloomquist uh, for Mainframe Pictures. Um, it is called Founders Day. It just wrapped filming in Connecticut. And apparently uh, what it's about is it's a contemporary murder mystery set in the midst of a heated mayoral election on the eve of a quaint New England town's tricentennial. Hmm. Uh, so um, a new slasher always is good news to me. Let's and, do it. Yeah, it's got an interesting – it's not quite a holiday because, you know, Founders Day is a, like this founder for the, the towns, you know, made up. But uh, it's got a little bit of a holiday vibe because it's set on a holiday for that town. So, yeah, let's see what goes comes comes of it. Hopefully it'll be pretty sweet. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. That's all fun stuff. And now it is time for our feature film. Black Christmas, baby. <laughs> so Black Christmas was released uh, December 20th, 1974. And there is a lot of star power behind this movie. And it's it's pretty crazy. Like if you think about Bob Clark, his famous movies are Porky's, A Christmas Story. Um, what's that? Baby super geniuses. Babies. We, we yeah, do have super to say baby, baby geniuses. I'm and sorry, super yeah. babies. And my personal favorite um Rhinestone with Sylvester Stallone yes, when he goes to Nashville to, to become a song singer, falls in oh. love with Dolly Parton. <gasps> love it. <laughs> oh, and we do have to mention the the Porkies and Porkies Two the next day. Yeah, the next day. Yeah, and then we we have uh, you know Olivia Hussey from Romeo and Juliet. We'll get into the cast in a little bit, but yeah. it's yeah. Uh, so I don't know holiday horror. Every major hol holiday that we celebrate has some kind of bloody history behind it, and especially Christmas, and that's why we. We all as a society, we love and we dread the holidays at the same time, which is why holiday horror films are so fun. Because it's like, for me, it's a cathartic stress release, like most slasher and, and horror movies are. Um, I, was, I, I just watch, like enjoy watching people get sliced up and, you know, what can I do? And desecrating a holiday such as Christmas is particularly fun. <laughs> well, I was going to say that one of the, I totally agree with you. And one of the uh, aspects of holiday horror that appeals to me the most is the fact that Traditionally, this holiday season is intended as, you know, one of charity, one of giving, one of love, one of reflection. Uh, and all of that is, of course, true. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it. I mean, you know, I, I watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas Eve, you know, that sort of thing. However, it is great to undercut that, to subvert it. And there's no better subversion of the holiday season than a holiday horror film. And Black Christmas isn't necessarily the first, but it, it definitely hits that nail on the head perfectly in the sense that right from the title, you know, taking white Christmas and then saying, well, now this is black Christmas. It's dark, you know, yeah. so it's it's just right up front telling you what its intentions are. And uh, and it pays those off perfectly. Yeah. And you're right. You know, today we are we know that horror and holidays, it goes hand in hand, but not back in, you know, 1974. It didn't. So, 
you know, and Christmas, people forget Christmas is a spooky holiday. You know, people mm-hmm. get together. They talk about ghost stories. Like back in the day, they did. Well, Only see, my, recently. Argument, my cultural argument on Christmas and horror is the fact that Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol is a fucking horror story. It's scary. <laughs> it is. And it was intended as such because, of course, the point of the tale of Ebenezer Scrooge is that he is frightened to death, almost death, of what he is and what he could become. So in order for him to change as a person it can't be you know nice and sweet and oh you're bad you know don't you feel bad that you're bad it's not it, you know it's not intended in that way and of course mm-hmm. it also belongs to this long-standing tradition of ghost stories uh especially in england um t- being told around christmas time because of i guess the you know the chill in the air uh the fact that people are kind of huddled in their homes around warm Heat sources, you know, campfires mm-hmm. or fires. Full of all and, that passive um, aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that all of that's there. And I, yeah, there's something that's always been there in, in the ghost story and Christmas that have been hand in hand for centuries. So it feels like holiday horror is just a natural extension of that where, you know, instead of ghosts necessarily, now let's get into serial killers. Now let's get into monsters. Let's get into, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And that's it's like the juxtaposition of what gives us, you know, so much joy and happiness and merriment with, you know, graphic murders. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. Well, Eli Roth called it the ground zero for holiday horror. Black Christmas. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice, I agree nice. with him. I absolutely agree with him. Nice. Um, so the plot of this movie is at the start of winter break, a serial killer breaks into the attic of a sorority house. He terrorizes the women downstairs with disturbing phone calls. This includes Jeff's, Jess and the often inebriated Barb, my favorite. Uh, initially, Barb eggs the caller on but stops when he responds threatening, uh, threateningly. The next day, one of the girls from town goes missing and one of the sorority house sisters is missing. And it leads the campus in the town to suspect, obviously, there's a serial killer on the loose, but nobody knows just how near the culprit is. Ooh. Ooh. Um, and I love the tagline for this movie. If this movie does not make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. <laughs> and I believe it was also released under the title uh, Silent Night, Evil Night. Yeah. Oh, we'll yes. get into all the different titles. Yeah. yeah. No, but the marketing for this is, is, always, is just as on point as its title. Okay. So Clark takes on the point of view from one of my favorite films, it like the Mario Brava uh, Bay of Blood with that whole... This kind of started the subjective camera in slasher films, um, mm-hmm. which is funny because critics jumped on that later and they didn't like it for what? Friday the 13th? Well, Halloween. And they didn't like it for Halloween either because it's massage. Well, they, you know. they, they liked it. But I mean, they, they also Halloween was hit with the criticism over and over again about, uh, well, it's making you identify with the killer because you're in his view. That's not mm-hmm. true at all, because the entire point of especially the opening shot of Halloween is to uh obfuscate who the killer is you're expecting if you're first watching that movie you have no idea what's going on you're expecting to see oh it's a guy you know an adult man walking around killing these people oh no it's the kid oh no it's the little brother oh no you know Um, and then from that point on there's no more point of view shots in halloween you think they might be a point of view but then michael steps into the shot which means it's not a point of view anyway so yeah, and that, this that one really takes it. Yeah. This it one does. is, it's really cool. Um, yeah. But the point is that you never see the face, and that is what's so scary, is you get to see that horribly disturbing eye, and that eye is creepy. I mean, there's so many little things in this movie, and it's the idea that, you know, all of this is happening at Christmas time brings a whole nother level to the film. Like, it's beautiful, it's shiny, it's pretty. I love the house, I love the decorations. Oh, and yeah, that makes the ambiance all the gore. Is 
it makes the the gore much more horrific because it's not it's not extremely gory. No, not at all. And um, I think what Bob Clark does um, really well is he makes us care about the characers. Like mm. he ma- and he also nails making these girls feel very real. It's just like mm-hmm. a real group of friends and enemies in a sorority. I've never been in one, but like, you know, mm-hmm. come on, this is a sorority house, not a convent. <laughs> and I also think it was extremely progressive um, mm. because then there is just the side of the story. Olivia Hussey's the main character and her friends are disappearing. Just is also grappling with the decision of having to have an abortion. And it's a very bold plot line for a film that came out the year after Roe vs. Wade went. Oh, um, yeah. And like, look at where we are now. Back to the 70, 1973. <laughs> well, it's interesting that... Um... It just so happens that I'm about to write a article about uh, the origins of Black Christmas for Slash Films. So by the time this episode comes out, it should probably be there. Um, But one of the things that is interesting is that uh, Bob Clark, who was originally from Florida, and he uh, somehow... um, Didn't his crazy ass move from Florida to Toronto? Yeah, he moved from Florida to Canada. No. Basically because he was... He made... um, one of his earliest features, children shouldn't play with dead things. And I only say that because it's cold and I don't like the cold. I have nothing against Canada. Just wanted yeah, to throw that out there. Nice Sorry. there. Of course, they're the nicest people in the world. So one of the reasons that Clark uh, moved to Canada is because after making um, children shouldn't play with dead things and uh, the uh, follow up, which was 1972's Death Dream, which is a really fascinating, really uh, socially interesting horror film. If you ever get the chance to see it. Uh, it's about a uh, Vietnam veteran who returns uh, to his family home after being discharged from the army. And, you know, he's changed <laughs> after his his wartime experience. And it's it would make a great double feature with George A. Romero's Martin in the same way where it's about vampirism, but it's not about a supernatural vampire. It's more about a person kind of psychologically being uh, mentally unstable enough to think that they're a vampire. So it's it's that mm-hmm. it's got that that vibe to it. Um, but after making Children and then Death Dream, uh, the tax haven uh, or tax shelter in Canada was so great for filmmaking at the, in the 70s because the Canadian film industry was just starting to ramp up around the mid 70s. Um, and in order to sort of jumpstart their film industry, Canada had uh, decided to give a huge amount of tax breaks on film production within the country. Um, and they'd also started a uh, government funded uh Canadian film industry. And if you ever go into the history of David Cronenberg as a filmmaker, there's a lot to go on there because he made Shivers, his first film, through the Canadian oh. government money. And then there was this whole controversy because the Canadian government was like, why are we allowing our government to make films like this? Anyway, <laughs> so so Bob Clark was just one of these filmmakers who took advantage of that tax sheltering and decided to go up to Canada and, and move his butt up to Canada to make movies uh, continuing in the you know, genre, low budget space because the money was just too good up there. And I believe Black Christmas was his first his first Canadian production, I believe. Oh, OK. And I think that this this movie is still the number one highest grossing movie to come out of Canada. Yeah. But I wanted to say that when he was growing up in Florida and starting to make movies in Florida, he wanted to make Porky's right away. He Porky's was eventually made about a decade later in early 80s, oh. 1981. And if you ever watch Borky's, yes, there's the shower scene with all the the nudity. But that movie is very interested in discussions of, you know, it's set in like the late 50s, early 60s uh, when Bob Clark himself was a teenager. And it was 
um, exploring these ideas of racism and uh, bigotry and uh, expanding social consciousness and and permissiveness in, in American culture. And that was something that was very much on his mind. And of course, this was 74 when he was making Black Christmas. And those themes were obviously still in the air. Uh, and in terms of, you know, Roe versus Wade and feminism and also just in general, the way that the youth had changed in such a big, dramatic way uh, from the prior adult generation of the time. So in Black Christmas, you have this, you know, subplot of um, what's the dead girl's name? Claire. Claire. You have the subplot of Claire's father, uh, Mr. Harrison, uh, James Edmund is the character as the actor who is being shown around the campus and the sorority house and just utterly shocked at everything he's seeing. Uh, <laughs> Mrs. Mack, of course, is, is the, the den mother and, and Mrs. Mack is a huge lush uh, and doesn't really care what the girls get up to in terms of their sexuality or or promiscuity and the fact that they're outspoken. Yeah. So um, it's it's a really interesting social uh, undercurrent there. And of course, everything that happens with the police officers, um, with uh, Sergeant Nash, uh, and his complete obliviousness to Barb's uh, come-ons and and provocation. Uh, to everything. And, he was so horrible. Like, every, yeah. all the police officers in here didn't believe anything any of the people were saying. They believed, they were like, oh, she's missing. Oh, no, she's just shacked up with her boyfriend somewhere. I'm getting these harassing phone calls. It's probably just your boyfriend. It's like, my boyfriend's standing right next to me. What are you talking about, you know? Uh, and speaking of boyfriends, I mean, by making her disapproving boyfriend, Peter, um, a suspect, the abortion debate becomes a part of the mur murder mystery. Like jumping back to that, because looking back, Black Christmas, you know, Peter being horrible to her and trying to force her to have the baby when she feels like she's too young and wants to finish college, expecting her to drop everything she's been wants working her own towards. Career, wants her own life. Yeah. yeah. And is really aggressive about it. So, of course, it sets him up as the one who's stalking and killing everyone because it seems you know, in his mind, he's angry at her for wanting to kill their baby, as he keeps saying. And there's a lot going on with the characters that is reflective of what was going on with women in the early 70s with being ignored, not being listened to. And I just think Clark's direction was really forward thinking, whether he was setting out to make a, like a political forward thinking movie or not. Um, well, that's my argument is that it was definitely on his mind. I don't know if necessarily okay. he was thinking Black Christmas will be my statement on blah, blah, blah. But it's certainly those themes were on his mind. And if you look at Bob Clark's an interesting filmmaker because he's not an auteur in the way that you can't watch one of his movies and go, oh, I know that's a Bob Clark movie because X, Y, Z. You know, he doesn't have Yo, a, he a signature style. He has the craziest IMDb I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, <laughs> and his IMDb is all over the place. In fact, one of my dream double features has always been to, to show in a theater back-to-back -back Black Christmas and A Christmas Story just for the whiplash of that. Right? It will never happen because they're two completely demographic, different demographics. And like, you know, you can't sell tickets to, you know, kids can't come to it because of Black Christmas and adults may not want to sit through a Christmas story. So I don't know. But it would... like, it's something that I, I, I enjoy watching every year just because there are some similarities. Like there's the, the terrible, terrible phone calls that happen in Black Christmas. And then in a Christmas story, there's the moment where uh, Ralphie... Uh, fibs and and tells his mother that he learned the f word from his friend and ralphie's mom calls the other guy friend's mother and the mother goes wah, 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 you know and she's screaming on the other end of the line very similar to billy and graph so anyway there's these parallels that you can find if you really squint um hmm. but but bob clark if he does have a, a through line to his career as an artist as a filmmaker it is that he tries to be very socially conscious to the mm -hmm. point where like porky's two the next day is 
a bizarre sequel to a teen sex comedy, what people thought of as a teen sex comedy. Because, yes, there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of nudity in Porky's one. But, like, Bob Clark was mortified that people thought it was just a aimless, you know, dumb teen comedy. So Aww. with Porky's 2, there's no nudity. Uh, there's barely some sexual content in terms of, like, ribald kind of, you know, haha dialogue. But most of the movie is about – it's split up between, like, the students at Porky's high school uh, or, or at the high school in the movie. They're trying to do, like, Shakespeare and the governing board won't let them because they think Shakespeare's obscene. And then it ends up as a huge fight between the students and the literal Ku Klux Klan. Whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, Bob Clark is a really interesting guy in the sense that, like, yeah, he he definitely had his heart in the right place and he was trying to explore these themes. So I, all that is to say that Black Christmas, I think it's it's definitely valid to, to call it, you know, a, a progressive movie, because I think that he was definitely on the on the money for that. And introducing many of the stylistic tropes that define the slasher genre now, like baiting the audience with the whodunit mystery, staging a series of brutal murders, each more gruesome than the last one, having the killer be in the house and taunting the victims from inside the house. Like, has that had that been done before? I don't believe it had in film. I know that uh, the director of When a Stranger Calls, which was 1979, uh, which popularized fully the the calls are coming from inside the house. Trope, yeah. Um, that, that was a couple years, what, four years after? That, well, yeah, that was that was after in terms okay. of the movie. But they had made a version of it uh, as a short film called The Sitter somewhere around the same time as Black uh, Christmas. Okay. But I don't, I'm not accusing Bob Clark of ripping it off or anything. No. Just, I'm just saying that uh, what's interesting about that whole trope is that it started um, allegedly in uh, a real-life true crime incidence of – I believe it was a babysitter. Oh, uh, that's my whole next segment. Oh, okay, great. Well, I was going to say, yeah. So there's this there's this great urban legend aspect to Black Christmas, which Ashley's going to talk about here. We could just get right into it. Um, so Black Christmas, uh, was originally or initially developed by Canadian screenwriter Roy Moore, who wrote the screenplay and the inspirations for the film, as you said, was the urban legend known as the Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, which had been widespread during the 1970s. And Moore also claimed to have been inspired by a series of murders that occurred during the holiday season in Westmount area of Montreal. Um, in the the article for that, uh, I think that was 1943. Yeah. It was perpetuated by a 14 year old boy who bludgeoned several of his family members to death. Yeah. And then um, Moore also wrote the screenplay under the title "Stop Me." And "Stop Me" is what the Illinois serial killer William Herons used to write on um, the mirror with lipstick at his crime scenes. Um, he was known as the lipstick killer. Mm. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And I think that's where this movie especially gets its power is that it's drawing from all these true life, whether or not, you know, you, we can talk all day about whether these urban legends, how true they are, what actually mm -hmm. happened, so on and so forth. But really, Black Christmas brings together a couple of those urban legends that were in the air at the time. And I think that's why it has such a unique uh, place in horror movie history and also just vibe. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, this was obviously several years before Carpenter's Halloween. And if Carpenter's Halloween, as we've spoken about, about that movie on a couple episodes ago, you know, that movie um, became the urtext of the slasher film going forward. It became the formula that everyone wanted to try and replicate. So Black Christmas, even though it predates Halloween and, and it, you know, kind of pioneers certain aspects of it in terms of its style and in terms of its tone, it still stands alone in the sense that it's not slavish to, uh, you know, yeah. the Halloween formula, so to speak. 
And then there's the rumor mill, you know, that Halloween was a planned sequel to right, Black Christmas, yeah. and that is not true. Uh, but Clark does imply that Carpenter stole ideas from him because he was he like, does. oh, and I said that this was, you know, I laid it all out for him. <laughs> and Carpenter is, I believe, gone on the record that's, as saying at least that he was aware of Black Christmas as a movie before making Halloween. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't, I think that, you know, all's fair in love and war, so to speak, in terms of, I mean, hey, I've had my idea stolen from yeah. a pilot, you know, and whatever. Um, so um, but it's, they did, it's that sort of thing. They were both going off the same urban legend, and and that original title was The Babysitter Murders, too. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, one is better than the other, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so Clark felt that the original script was a little too straightforward of a slasher film, so he made a lot of alterations in the dialogue and incu- incorporated a lot of um, humorous elements, which brought in Drunken Barb and Miss Mac. Uh, who was based off his own aunt and Nash. And then the film producers um, had Timothy Bond rewrite the script to give it a university setting because they didn't want the kids. They wanted Clark felt like um, in in college and high school students hadn't been depicted in any sense of reality in American films. So he kind of wanted I think I have it quoted as, you know, college students, even in 1974, are astute people. They're not fools. It's not all bikinis, beaches and blankets and bingo. Which I thought was just a really funny way to put it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so he wanted to show them, you know, as people, and and, which is funny because Porky's is kind of like Porky's. But I I I give a lot of credit to Porky's because Porky's has a terrible reputation as a movie. I think it's a much more fascinating and I'll even say progressive movie than even fucking Animal House was. And I love Animal House too. Yeah, but like Animal House definitely feels like it has the correct reputation, which is, you know, that movie is is all about looking back at a nostalgic time period for people at the time and then saying, hey, it was a wild time. And also, we're going to break the rules. We're going to break conventions and we're just going to be crazy and zany. And Porky's <laughs> is trying to address that from a much more philosophical or sociological uh, progressive way of like, you know, hey, we're all people here. Uh, we should all love each other. We We shouldn't, you know, hate based on race or color or creed. Um, and also we're all horny and, you know, so it's, yeah. So like, that's definitely an aspect of it, but it's def, but it's not like a dumb, it's not a fucking Fairly Brothers movie, you know, mm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. So it's, it's definitely worth American a, a, a second or... look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk about casting Yeah, because this is, this is chock full. So mm-hmm. we have Olivia, Olivia Hussey who had previously gained just a little bit of international fame for that small One movie. One of the most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> So beautiful that hair, her even her fingernails oh work. Um, so she was Juliet in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet in 1968, and she's she's a serious actress. Like she did Death on the Nile, uh, The Last Days of Pompeii, and was literally the last person to sign on for the film. And it was luckily for Clark that she is addicted to psychics. <laughs> <laughs> so right before, like two days, maybe two or three days, as the crow flies. Um, her psychic had just told her that she would be making a film in Canada that would earn her a great deal of money. Um, so, and then he sent her the script and she signed on immediately. And because she said yes, other big stars then said yes. Um, she was also obsessed with the idea of falling in love with Paul McCartney, which I keep, every time I look her up, yeah, her psychic told her that she was going to marry Paul McCartney. So she like, she had one like night with him or something, as oh, they say. Dang. And she wrote a poem about it, but she was absolutely in love. Olivia, with you him. hussy. Sorry. I you hussy. Um, I just want to give a little postscript to Olivia Hussey because 
apparently uh, um, she auditioned. She didn't unfortunately get it, but she auditioned for the 1987 Steve Martin movie Roxanne, which was the update of like Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, yeah. He has a long nose. Um, and, uh, in the audition, uh, Steve Martin, you know, had to tell her like, look, I love your work. In fact, you were in one of my all time favorite movies. And Lovia Hussey was like, oh, that's great. That's great to hear Romeo and Juliet. Right. And Steve Martin was like, no, Black Christmas. <laughs> he goes, I've seen it 27 times. Yeah. And you know, Black Christmas was also Elvis's favorite movie. Was it now? Weird, right? I'm telling you, there's something about horror movies that let people like it's cathartic for, mm-hmm. for some of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, Help me say his name. Kier Duella. You know, I've never heard his name said out loud. I don't it's think. A gorgeous I always say, name. I've always said Kier Delay. Delay is probably right. Yeah. Delay Kier is probably Delay. right. Um, so Clark sought Kier Delay out to play the role of Peter based on his performance in or as David Bowman in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, and he signed on because all of his scenes were going to be with Hussey. And he was like, right. absolutely, I want to work with her. And also, I awards to him for playing a college kid at 38. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny to see Dave Bowman, who you kind of read as adult, adult man in 2001, and then Kier's playing uh, a college student. <laughs> but I think the part of the plot is that um, Peter is intended to be a grad student. I mean, he's kind of there as part of the conservatory. He said he was there eight years. And I was yeah, like... Yeah, <laughs> so I, I don't think we're meant to see Peter as like a 21-year-old, but like still. <laughs> yeah, still 38 crushing. I hope he get you know, I would like to see what the oldest person playing you know, someone in high school or colleges, that'd be a fun little yeah, internet deep still dive. Be hope for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the role of Miss Miss Mack was offered to Betty Davis, which I love uh who played Marion Waldman, right? Mm-hmm. Played her. Mm-hmm. I would have loved if it was Betty Davis. I would, but then it would have become the Betty Davis movie. I mean, yeah, that's you know, true. That she would have taken it over somehow and yeah. It would have been Miss Mack showing up at the end <laughs> instead or something with like, I'll get him for <laughs> you girls or something. <laughs> Yeah, um, I guess the rest of the people. Uh, well, there's another big name. You have. There's two, actually. There's two. I mean, your favorite. Uh, well, because I have sad stories to tell with those other oh, two. <laughs> with Andrea as well? Uh, no, with John Saxon and with oh, Margaret okay. Kidder. Well, well I want to mention ahead. Andrea you're, Martin. Yeah, your turn. Because uh, she's uh, a, a name in terms of uh, her work with SCTV. Uh, and um, she is also, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. But she's also the connective tissue between this Black Christmas and the 2006 remake. She has a big part Did in you well. I didn't see it. Is it is that okay or is it we'll terrible? We'll talk about it later. Okay. We'll talk about it those, right. those later. I want to hear about it. But yeah, okay. Andrea Martin is, is definitely um, someone of note uh, in the cast. And um, I also want to mention Art Hindle because uh, he's a Bob Clark regular. He also turns up as a cop in Porky's. Um, he's also a David Cronenberg veteran. He was uh, fantastic oh. as the male lead in The Brood a few years later. I love the brood. Um, and uh, he's also great in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake from 1978. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, Art Hindle's a, a big uh, name uh, if you're a horror genre fan of, of the 70s. And why wouldn't you be? You're listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. So, There's a lot uh, of Canadian actors in uh, this, he's rightfully Canadian, yes. so, yeah. Yes. And, and another David Cronenberg connection, thanks to the Canada thing, is Les Carlson. He plays the uh, telephone operator um, who has to try and track down where the phone calls are coming from. That in the, scene uh, is mind-blowing. Because it's I'm so like, good. is that how, just looking at how phones used to work, my, oh, my yeah. nostalgia for a rotary phone went up like 110%. <laughs> I miss that so much. And it seems like, question, can you call the house from inside the house? Is that a thing? Can you do it? Well, because the whole point is that 
is a different phone line. So yes, you can because okay. each of the he phones kept using aren't the, house the same mothers. landline, right? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They were registered separately, sort of. I was trying to break all. I'm like, what is he doing in this big warehouse, just plugging wires? I'm like, this is crazy. I don't understand how any of that works, but it's yeah. cool. <laughs> but anyway, just to finish the thought, Les Carlson is a very big David Cronenberg regular. Um, most notably, uh, the role of Barry Convex in 1983's Videodrome. Ah. Uh. Um, but he also turns up in The Dead Zone, and he also comes back for Bob Clark in A Christmas Story. He sells the uh, Ralphie's family the Christmas tree in the Christmas yes. tree lot. So, yeah, Les Carlson is another big Canadian genre film face. Okay. And then we have the king of 70s movies and horror himself, um, John Saxon, who is just... Amazing. His career is so fascinating as an actor. Uh, we, you got Enter the Dragon. You have Tenebrae by Dario Argento. You have, what is it, The the Eye or something by Mario Brava? You, I mean, he starts back in like the friggin' 50s, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. the 40s. But like he was in movies like Curtis Harrington's uh, Queen of Blood. And yeah, you said the Mario Brava, The Eye, which is <laughs> He's in Clint Giallos. Eastwood's Joe, Joe Kidd. Mm-hmm. Um, Nightmare Cannibal, on Elm Street. Cannibal Apocalypse. Cannibal Apocalypse. <laughs> Yeah, and the, oh God, I love him so much. So he, um, here's sad story number one. As we were watching Joe Bob, and he, as Joe Bob says, all Christmases have to have sad stories. So here's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so John Saxon um, was not cast originally in this. It was supposed to be um, Ed, Edmund O'Brien. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you say it. So he accepted the part, flew to Toronto Tuesdays before shooting was about to start. Um, Bob Clark and the producer met his plane the night he arrived and he came off the plane in a wheelchair and they're like, what's going on here? Whatever. Maybe he's just tired. But then he stood up and it took like, I don't know, they said 45 minutes for him just to put his coat on. And that's when they started to realize something is going on here. So they take him out to dinner and halfway through the dinner, he says he has to go up to his room because he thought he was in his hotel, but he was actually in a restaurant, which had nothing to do with his hotel. He didn't know what city he was in. And they found out pretty quickly that he was in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's disease. So they had to tell them he couldn't have the role. Plus, he was so frail. And a lot of the scenes for the, you know, the lieutenant were to be filmed outside in the freezing cold, like Canadian weather. So it was just not going to work for him. And like when they told him, he started crying and begging that he could do it, that he could remember enough lines to do the part. And it was two days, you know two days before they called John Saxton who had already read the script priorly and luckily was available. And he had to get to Toronto from New York within two days. And then the first scene that they film is them starting the search party. So within Mm -hmm. 48 hours, he's up there doing the thing, but you know, that's crazy. Yeah. And for people who are listening who may not know who Edward Eminem O'Brien was, uh, he was in movies like uh, the killers uh, White Heat, the James Cagney movie, uh, DOA, which is one of my favorite noirs. Oh. Um, the Girl Can't Help It, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, the John Ford movie, Fantastic Voyage, The Wild Bunch. So he was in a string of classics and is just a really stalwart, you know, American character actor. So in the way that John Saxon, um, his vibe is, is you know, kind of the reliable kind of, you know, middle-aged man, like I guess Eminem O'Brien is definitely the same type. So if you can sort of imagine that in your head. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I do. That stuff's so scary. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, like the, put it out of your mind. Like it's not going to happen to me. I'm just not going to mm-hmm. think about it. Yeah. Maybe it's awesome. Who knows? You know, that's one of those yeah. things. Like it's, you know, it's not awesome. It's like, I always thought, do you ever think about like what being in a coma might be like, 
Like, what if it's awesome? Do you ever what think about you... being dead? <laughs> Do you ever think about what it'd be like if there is no dead. afterlife and it's just nothing? Just nothing, I guess. Yeah. It's just like before. I don't remember are anything are before. You aware or, yeah, is it, are you aware? Is it no awareness? What's, what's at yeah. the end? Let's really get into it right now. <laughs> Let's get a deep dive. Yeah. All right. So I'll tell sad story number two since we're talking about really downer shit. Um, Margot Kidder, I'm sure you know how this goes. So she was cast in the role of Barb and she had said she was attra attracted to the character because, you know, she was wild and out of control, which is a pretty good detailing of, uh, you know, not the conventional leading part, but still a really fun role. And honestly, a more stand the most standout character, I would say, in mm -hmm. most of the film. Um, so this was years before she played Lois Lane in Superman. And she was hired for this movie because she was dating Brian De Palma, I think. And yeah, they were she, friends. I think she had just made Sisters, I believe. Yeah, Sisters yeah. was directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, and it also helped that she was Canadian and they were trying to use as many of the Canadian actors to get the tax credits, as we talked about. Um, so her story gets pretty sad. Um, so booze and drugs. She actually was pretty much like her character. She loved the booze and she loved the pills. And um, unfortunately, she suffered from paranoia her whole life, which eventually turned into a bipolar disorder. Uh, she faked her own death one time because she thought that people were trying to kill her, which led to her being homeless on the streets of L.A., uh, you know, she had suffered from bankruptcy, uh, two terrible car accidents that left her unhirable and unable to work. So she ended up leaving L.A. and moving to Livingston, Montana, which had a population of 7,000. That's what I want my town to sound like. Ashley lives in a town that has only 7,000 people. Yes, please. Um, but unfortunately, in 2018, she died by suicide. So it's really sad. But I mean, she did make an impact, I think, on Hollywood in her own way. Oh, I mean, and also just genre fans. I mean, her work Lois here at Black Christmas, fucking mm -hmm. Lois Lane, uh, all the way up to Rob Zombie's Halloween, too. She's great in that, legitimately. So, um, Who is she in Rob Zombie's Halloween? She's, she's the mom? She's Lori's therapist. Oh, no way. I have to watch it again. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. And if you watch That's, the director's leave cut. Leave it to Rob uh, Zombie to give her, her a job. Uh -huh. Good for him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so... And then I guess we have uh, the last character to talk about is the one that we never see, uh, the film's antagonist, <laughs> uh, Italian actor Nick Mancusos. Mancusos. I'm so bad with these goddamn names. Was cast as the You're main voice Tim on the phone. All over the place. <laughs> I'm Quentin. I'm Quentin. I'm Quentin. <laughs> I was listening to Tarantino on a podcast the other day, and I'm like, holy shit, yeah. we sound like the same person. <laughs> but he's smarter. He uses bigger words. Um, Occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> so the voices are, what was it? Mancuso? Mancuso, yeah. Mancuso and Clark. Um, and when auditioning for the role, Clark had Mancuso sit in a chair facing away from him so he didn't see the actor's face to still see if it had like that, that zhuzh. And then he had him experiment with the voices by standing on his head. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm trying to Apparently remember. They did all kinds of shit, you know, when, when creating those phone calls. Yeah. Which is why it's it's so great in the sense that when you're listening to uh, watching the film for the first time, your your mind is processing the fact that there's no way that this could all be making this, this one could all person. be made by one person. But it has that supernatural kind of frisson of Ugh. like, you know, maybe it is and how and why. And yeah, so it just adds to the mystique of the whole quote unquote Billy character, even though we must point out that's not officially his name. No one actually knows right. what his name is. Right. This could just be all rantings from his head of nonsense. That I have he a made story. Up. I have okay. a story about what I think happened. So, well, 
Wait, wait. Should we oh, get well, to that we're later? holding on to that. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, I do want to say calls, now, though, though at this gross. point, phone calls are great. Um, one of the all-time, I just have to mention it because it's a beef of mine. One of the all-time worst audio commentary tracks in any release of any movie ever is on. Unfortunately, it's on the Black Christmas Blu-ray DVD upcoming 4K edition. Um, somebody thought it would be a good idea to put Mancuso in a booth, a recording booth, and tell him, "Hey, you should record a commentary track for the whole movie as Billy." No, he didn't do that, did he? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it is the most obnoxious commentary you've ever heard because it's not sentences. It's not like he suddenly, you know, starts to. He's like, "Let me lick he, your beep beep beep." Yeah, beep. no, he just commits to the bit and just like every, and it's not even consistent. It's just kind of long episodes of silence, and then every so often he'll go. Who thought this was a good fucking idea? No, man. Yeah. And you know, I'm pretty like I have a, a sailor mouth, as we a lot of people know. But every time I hear the calls, I mean, I do think we've gotten more vulgar as a society in general. Yeah. But those calls, they they do shock me. And it's they're like, still pretty gross. are you saying pig or pink, pig or pink? That's that's the question. So I put on subtitles this time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's both. <laughs> According to subtitles. <laughs> uh, okay, so like we said, it was shot on location in Toronto in the winter of uh, 1973. Um, I love the house that they picked. It was, yeah. I think it was on a University of uh, Toronto campus. Mm-hmm. It has a very like kind of picture book New Englandy vibe to it. Yeah, I, I love, baby, I love a Tudor home. I love that house so much. The be- And that's why there's something about me a lot of people don't know. My favorite sound in the world is winter winds. Hmm. Like, that's what I sleep to with my white noise machine. It's always like winter winds with a crackling fire. And just that hmm. little ching, ching, ching of, of bells does it for me. I don't know what it is. So that's why I love the opening and the ending of this movie so much. Because that house is just, it's like, it's almost like, Home Alone, in a way. You're oh, looking yeah. at this beautiful, picturesque house, and the way you feel about it, seeing that house from the beginning is completely different than how you feel about it when you see it at the end credits. Mm. And then, the, so so the Steadicam was a couple years away from being invented, so the camera operator, Brent Dunk, built a special body brace that he had hinged on um, his front and a safety belt with a pad on it down the front of the device so he could tilt the camera up and down while it was mounted on his head so he could crawl up the tre- tre- uh, trellis? Tre- trellis and move up and down the staircases and show the killer's point of view. So not the first time it's ever been done, but it was definitely the most ambitious for the time. Absolutely. That's pretty cool. And um, I just want to call out uh, Stan Cole's editing in this movie because the movie has a tremendously great sense of pace. Obviously, Clark's to do with this as well. But um, it, it you know, speeds up when it needs to. It slows down when it can. Um, it's not frenetic. It's not showy. It's not, you know, hey, look what we can do. Because this, of course, remember, this is the time of, of New Hollywood. And again, Bob Clark isn't one of these auteurs who is imposing his will on the filmmaking as, you know, a Kubrick would do or a Robert Altman would do or something like that. Um, he's someone who's, who's trying just to do a, a good job as best he can to tell the story the best way he knows possible. Um, and it just so happens that he has some really ingenious ideas while making this movie um, in terms of building this sense of dread. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, gaps in dialogue, but there's also a lot of overlapping dialogue at times, mm-hmm. too, especially, you know, 
in the ensemble scenes and there's a lot of cacophony happening and then it goes to like very, very quiet. I'm thinking of when Claire leaves the party at the beginning and then goes to her bedroom, you know, the party is kind of breaking up. So it's, it's still got some noise in the background, but it's much lesser than what it had been. And in terms of co collaborating with Reginald Morris and his cinematography, that reveal of Billy or the killer in her closet is still utterly chilling <laughs> as I a know. visual because it takes your eyes a little bit to adjust to see, okay, what am I looking? Why are you holding on this? Oh shit. Yeah. You know, the to understand that he's plays, standing there. Claire said that, um, you know, all of that wasn't even acting for her. Cause it was a, to to she was totally shocked. She didn't really know when to expect him to jump out. So when mm. you see that it was, she was like, I was really scared. <laughs> yeah, no, I think anyone would be. And I think it is good. Like John Saxon said that Clark had meticulously drawn out storyboards with key shots, which he brought to the film each day. So he was like, he said, I could understand exactly what I thought he needed and what the scenes needed. And that's that's like a lot of detail to, to make sure everybody's and you see it. I had yeah. my girlfriend over, Katie, and she watched it with me. She'd never seen it this morning. And she just kept saying, like, this is a really well done movie. This is really good. I'm like, it is. There's some and there's scenes stuff that like you keep. Discover, I keep discovering about it the more I watch it because I do watch it every year. And even um, a scene when Jess and uh, Andrea Martin's character, again, I forget her name. Um, Phyllis? Phil, yeah. They're, they're conversing about Peter on the couch. There are these shadows that are moving over the wall that are subtle enough that I, again, I watch this movie every year that I haven't picked up on until like I last noticed year this today too. or something yeah so it's, Ken it's actually that... noticed it he's like is okay. that is he standing right behind them yeah and I was like what are you talking about <laughs> oh my god he's right there and yeah. I never noticed that before yeah, yeah. it's really so cool. it's it's stuff that that really pays off with with a lot of rewatches uh which is so great I mean I think that's the sign of a masterpiece in terms of films you know mm -hmm. if you can watch it over and over and over and still find new stuff in it there's this one shot of um they find the uh, the 13 year old's body in, in the park and it's like the mom goes to scream, but no sound happens and it cuts to the phone ringing. And I was like, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Love it. It reminds me of that wonderful trailer for um, the 2002 remake of The Ring uh, where Naomi Watts goes to scream. And instead of a scream and coming out, it's like a dial tone or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful effect. They're, the way that they did Christmas, the decorations and everything in the house also feels so much like like a, a Christmas story movie. At the very end, you know, they're panning through the house and they're going past all the pictures of all the past sorority people. And then all of the Christmas lights are shining back through. There's just it's so homey and comforting, which is so disturbing that place, first of all, it's disgusting 70s. The everything, there's carpet, orange carpet. The fucking Christmas tree with all everywhere. that crappy tinsel oh over my it. God. I mean, but it's so 70s. When she's just sitting there by the fire, you you feel cozy. I don't know. There's just something, you know, comforting about that. And then again, the juxtaposition of what's actually happening. You're like, wait a minute. No, this is not a Christmas movie. Everything is fucked. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that about the, the homey feel, though, because there's such a perverse sense of warmth to the production design and even some of the photography. And of course, one of the standout set pieces is Barb's murder juxtaposed with the carolers. Yeah. Because my favorite scene. The kids are, you know, beatifically shot. They're all angelic looking. They have these high voices. It's a beautiful song. 
And, you know, it's it's I guess I think perverse is the best word for it because mm-hmm. and knowingly so it isn't like, oops, this was accidental. It, it's completely intentional. <laughs> they Uni- really crystal yeah. unicorn horn plunging. That was mm-hmm. that was a new one. I remember watching that the first time being like, oh, <laughs> got her. <laughs> Got her. Yeah. And, and then what a fake out he does with that scene because you see him go in and then you hear her start screaming and Jess runs upstairs to see what it is and she's just having an asthma attack. Mm-hmm. And then the carolers come and he's like, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, girl. And I, I, it is crazy. You never, you don't see Phyllis's death because every death gets worse and worse, but you don't see what happens to Phil. Yeah. So I guess I and take that, that back. That could have been a, uh, oops, we ran out of money or time to shoot something. But I, I kind of feel like it is also deliberate because you do get a little um, whisper of, of Billy, you know, saying, hang hey, Agnes up here or whatever. Oh, my God. When and, he shuts um, the door and yeah, you're like, the door. no, Phyllis, because I loved her. <laughs> and I think so much of this film's power uh, is the fact that, again, it's not beholden to what became the slasher formula, which is, all right, these kills got to be crazy. They got to be super graphic and they got to ramp up throughout the movie to like this insane degree. Um, you can really sense that there's not he's not playing that game because they don't have to. Because you know that expectation isn't there yet, um, and that and in that case, it it just becomes this psychological suspense thriller of you know letting your imagination run wild and giving your imagination enough fuel to run wild. Yeah, and I think what also helps add to all of the ambience that we're talking about is the score. The oh, random. Before we get the score, can I just mention my oh. scariest scene? Oh, sure. Okay. The, the thing that gets me every single year when I watch this, I have a phobia of being followed or chased, which is not an unusual phobia, really. Right. Um, but yeah, just like I, I guess it comes from like a, a fear of like not being fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> or, oh, or clever enough to evade a pursuer. I don't think um, I could run. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, moment when Jess uh, discovers... Um, uh, the bodies and then Billy is right behind the door and she, you know, slams him against it so she can get a little bit of time to run away down the stairs and she runs down the stairs and you hear him moving the door oh, out of the way. Psycho. And, like, you know, just insane, like fucking almost velociraptor sounds of, of his his feet and his arms, you know, and screaming. He's, he's screaming his head off because he's enraged. And she runs down that staircase, which is it like it's not a straight staircase. It's not up and down. It's got these little turns in it. And as she runs around the banister to, I think she's running towards the basement. He is able to reach over and grab her hair. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. As a girl. Oh Oh, God. I mean, that's, and that is a whole lot of hair (laughs) because it's that moment of like, in terms of where you are physically, it feels like you're ahead of him, but you're not. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh yeah. It's like he, there's a shortcut in terms of physical contact there. I'm trying to rationalize it intellectually, but it just it's just primal. It just well, it just always gets me as like a really grabs it terrifying from moment. over the balcony and pulls yeah. her back so hard she bashes her head on the banister, yeah. which stops yeah. her for a second. But at least he wasn't smart enough to jump over the banister. Right. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yes, let's uh, continue. So the the composer of the film score, Carl Zitter. 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 
stated in an interview that he created a lot of the film's music by trying um, tying forks and clocks and combs and knives onto the string of a piano to warp the sound of all the keys. He said the shrimp forks were apparently the ones that made the creepiest sounds. And he also said that he would distort the sound further by recording it onto an audio tape and then slowing it down with his hands, which uh, I love all of the sounds in this movie. It almost reminds me of the um, the credits roll for Blair Witch Project. It's just oh. these weird like, dong, dong, dong. and you're like, what is that? But when you know what it is, you're like, oh, wow, that is a genius way to do it. It's ambient music. It's not, yeah, there's you know, no this music. is not a melodic symphony of like the theme from Black Christmas. You know, it's, it's, uh, and it's something that is so ingenious in its design, not just from how he made those sounds, but the fact that it is a aural cue to make you the viewer completely suspect peter yes because peter is the piano player peter's the one who smashes the piano at a very grandiose were you, you know, like peter that piano tantrum. is not yours yeah what a dick <laughs> what a dick i do not feel bad for peter my oh dear. no 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 that's that's great too is the fact that even though ultimately peter is somewhat exonerated as uh as a serial miller killer it's like it doesn't matter he's still a dick um but uh, yeah, so it, it really goes a long way into playing into the whole whodunit aspect of the movie, which is a great, I think the one of the aspects of Black Christmas is so nasty and clever is the fact that it is a whodunit slasher that deliberately never pays off in that way. It's never a reveal of like, oh, it was actually da -da -da the whole time. Here's why. Because that ultimately is where a lot of those whodunit slashers went. Um, mm -hmm. I just watched this movie, uh, The Dorm That Drip Blood, last night for the first time. And that is very much a slasher movie that has the whodunit aspect, which then has the eventual killer say, it was me the whole time. Here's why. Da, 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 da. So Black Christmas never gives you that moment. Yeah. And I and Clark, like, he loves that. That's what he did on purpose. He's like, you're not going to get that satisfaction. You know, you. It's not there for you. And, and yeah. that is what makes the end so... So I, I don't know. It's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. What the mm -hmm. now? So like from the beginning, I'm like, look at this beautiful house. Now, you know, you can see that the cops didn't even bother to go upstairs. Did it? It's pretty much showing how much the town and society fails Jess and mm -hmm. like, and not just to say like fails women, but they were not listening to anybody. They weren't believing them. They didn't even search the house. He. The second that the lieutenant saw Peter, he immediately was like, I think that that guy's the killer. I just have this gut feeling. So when it looks like he's the killer after Jess kills him, he's like, that's it. Done it. They drug her up and leave her catatonic in the bed. With the killer still in the house and two other bodies still upstairs because they didn't even look. And then the police officer goes and stands on the goddamn porch. The fury I feel watching that end scene and watching how everybody failed and knowing that Jess is now probably being killed because I don't think she's getting out of it. It's mm -hmm. infuriating. Yeah. Infuriating. <laughs> it's, it's something that I think in a lesser movie, it would be maybe too much in the sense that it asks the audience a lot of, Hey, can you empathize with this character? Can you be invested in her plight and her struggle? And then we're going to let her win but actually not. I think that in a lesser movie in lesser hands, it would definitely be a, a, a betrayal. You know, in this, there's something about the construction of Black Christmas that that it feels horribly inevitable. 
you know, mm-hmm. and don't forget, Jess isn't completely blameless in the sense that she is completely convinced it's Peter. Yeah. To the Until point she's where she not. kills Peter. Yeah. Well, well then well, it didn't do good yeah. for Peter to show up and break no, through no, the no. goddamn and, and, and window. You, and you don't you don't blame Jess for I'm not saying you blame Jess for killing Peter. Yeah. I'm just saying Jess is also part of the uh you know, because Jess doesn't discover the bodies in the attic either. No. So it's it's this thing where, like, you know, she doesn't she, even she doesn't have all the answers. And I think one of the powers of the theme of Black Christmas is this idea that evil can fester and exist and thrive in a way that's completely unfathomable to society and and hits all of societies and, and cultures blind spots, you know, mm-hmm. where we we have this inherent belief that, oh, we are completely um, enlightened. We are civilized. We have all the tools and the talent to prevent, you know, atrocities happening in the future. And of course, year after year, that's proven to be untrue, mm-hmm. you know? So in a way that, in the way that like Christmas as a, as a nice holiday is reminding us of, you know, the charity of human beings and the love inside them and, and, you know, the ability for, for change and, and for progression, black Christmas is the opposite reminder of like, mm-hmm. These things will continue. <laughs> yeah, it, it shows how society leaves just vulnerable. You know, you feel unsafe is kind of like what, what I'm mm-hmm. feeling of at the end of the credits. And, you know, and then without the cathartic victory, you're just sitting here listening to that goddamn phone ring over mm. and over again until and they really hold that until all the credits roll. Yep. And, you know, whatever. I guess she's dead now. Way to go, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a mean spirited, but really insightful movie um, in the end, I feel. And it's um, I. I may even go so far as to call it satire because of its uh, humor quotient as well. Yeah, because, you know, we're we're encouraged, uh, you know, Clark is encouraging us to laugh at the buffoonery of the cops. Uh, and of course, the townies, you know, that's one of the things that Barb is like, oh, darling, you can't rape a townie. Oh, uh, I know. Which is one of the grossest lines. Uh, and um, such a rich bitchy sort of thing to I say. Know. And then uh, the uh, the pack of people who are going to hunt for the 13 year old's body. And of course, the couple of them come by the house and scare. What was Jess that? Bar- well, but when again, the guy does that outside, gross. But But again, it's just it's a continuing of that theme of like, look at these idiots that are supposedly the last line of defense that are helping the problem. They're not helping anything. They're not doing shit. Yeah. They're just going around making assumptions and, and, you know, scaring people inadvertently and acting like weirdos. Uh, and they're just kind of part of the problem, by the way, I think the blah, blah, blah thing you mentioned, yeah. I think that's intended as, as a sort of latent implication that, Oh, maybe these are the callers because they're making weird noises with their mouths. I think that there's a little bit of that. Oh, well, the guys do it outside of the door. Yeah. The right. Oh, you yeah. think that, oh, they want. That's us. what I mean. That's, I'm, I'm saying not for, for the, for the whodunit aspect of the movie. Oh, okay. I feel like, I feel like it's meant to implicate them a little bit, you know, it's like, Hey, why were they there already? And what are those weird noises they're making? You know? Yeah. Um, it doesn't, I don't think it succeeds at that very well, but I'm just saying, I think that was probably on their minds. With that, yeah. I just thought they were just showing that, you know, these guys were just being gross and weird. Yeah, I think that too. I yeah. think that's ultimately why it's successful. And then she says the one line, she was like, do you realize that this is the only door that locks in this entire house? All the windows and the doors are open. Why didn't you try to run out of those, Mary, when he was coming after you and you run into the basement? But even, And then she figures out how to lock the goddamn door. 
Yeah. But then, and it gets her stuck in the house. And I was just like, what do you mean? Everybody needs to lock their doors. Floodlights and doors locked. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's what make. I mean, I think I talked about this a little on the Halloween podcast that we did, but there's a really interesting sociological aspect of of 70s horror coming after the end of the 60s and the whole, you know, Manson family murders and all that, mm-hmm. where American society was finally kind of wising up to the idea of like, oh, we really shouldn't fully be trusting our, our neighbors. It sucks. Like, I mean, I'm sure the 50s were nice when, oh, come on over, neighbor. The door's already open or yeah. the key's under the mat and all this nonsense, you know. I think the 70s was that rude awakening to American society of like, maybe we should protect ourselves a little bit more because like these people that are either mentally unstable or just fully insane or or evil um, are completely taking advantage of, (laughs) you know, just leaving things open. And yeah, they needed to learn their lesson (laughs) and they told them in every movie, but people still do it. And I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, We were talking about the titles. Um, So they did Silent Night evil night because the studios who hated the ending mind you were worried that the title would mislead audiences to believing that the film was a black exploitation movie that is black exploitation movie oh black christmas would make people yeah. think it's oh black christmas yeah. yeah so they retracted the title after the initial release restoring it back to black christmas after subsequent like uh, after screenings and it and it went well but um toronto what a weird thing come on water brothers get it together um, he insists on keeping the ending ambiguous, even though I did hear, I read one story and you can tell me if this is true or not, where he was going to have the killer end up being the boyfriend of Claire. Right. Yeah. He was going to have Art Hindle, you know, reveal that, uh, because that was one of the, his ideas for the ending similar in the sense that, oh no, Jess is trapped in there with the killer, but it would just, it would pay off the whodunit aspect a little bit more and a little harder because it's a character we've already met. So it's someone we already know. I'm glad he didn't go that way for that reason, because, again, if the whole point of the end of this movie is to take away the audience's semblance of safety of like, oh, it was that guy all along, you know, that would have given us a little bit more, you know, uh, safety feeling. But I also think it would have made the ending a bit more of a betrayal, because if we know who the killer is and Jess doesn't, then it makes us feel like, oh, that's not fair. She wasn't allowed to have the answer before she was attacked. Yeah, yeah. So so it's a much stronger ending to just have it be a complete stranger and and not someone we've already met. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right in the sense that that was one of the endings they considered just to have a bit more of a payoff in that traditional, traditional way. In terms of interpreting who this Billy might be, um, you know, there's a compelling sort of story if you really listen to the phone calls of Billy being this child who had these overbearing parents and also a baby sister named Agnes. And that at some point, Billy being, you know, mentally unstable or or evil or diseased, um, raped the baby sister, Agnes, mm-hmm. and maybe got her pregnant even. Um, and, uh, and the parents found out and they beat Billy and then Billy killed the parents and yeah. maybe even Agnes. There's a lot of gaps in that story, obviously. There's, yeah, but, that's pretty much what I had to. Like, he was an abused kid, so he abused his sister sexually and then killed his parents, and the voices are him, himself, and his dead sister. So he's the multiple multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think ultimately my interpretation, because I, I, I like to hang on to the ambiguity of it. I, I don't... Yeah. When, when a horror movie has really good ambiguity going for it, it's actually my impulse to not pick at it, because... 
the ambiguity is where that tension, where that fear lives, you know, for me. So, um, but I think if, if I, if you were putting a gun to my head <laughs> that I would probably say that this guy is very assuredly a multiple personality disorder person. Yeah. You know, there's something going on there in terms of the different disparate voices and. Cause it um, is, it's very uh, thought out, you know, the things yeah. he's saying and yeah. it's, there's definitely a story there. And I like that Clark's like, nah, here's just a little, maybe, maybe that's yeah. what it is. But then they did, somebody did a, uh, it's me, Billy, the black Christmas mm -hmm. fan film. Did you ever hear about that from Indiegogo? I heard about it. I don't. I didn't I don't, see it. I don't rate fan films uh, no. in general. So, <laughs> but that's funny that nobody ever. Or I'm glad that he never did it. But I don't know. In in the world of sequels, it's actually kind of shocking that he didn't. So I give him a lot of credit. Yeah, and again, that's excuse me. Again, that's part of the uh, thing I was saying earlier about how Black Christmas the original isn't beholden to what we eventually came to know as the slasher movie. You know, because obviously if this was made just 10 years later or, or you know, nine or eight years later, um, we would have had, you know, Black Christmas 7 or whatever. And the further adventures. Of oh, Billy. my God. He would have put on a Santa hat or a Santa mask or something and gone out <laughs> and done his stuff. But um, it's so great that that didn't end up happening. Uh, and also, it's not like, you know, oh, it's too bad. Didn't happen for Bob for for further, you know, success opportunities. Obviously, if you look at the guy's IMDb, he, he worked steadily. He was fine. And I don't think he would have wanted to do sequels to it either. No. He never, with the exception of Porky's, and the only reason he made Porky's too is because he was so um, disappointed and insulted that the response to the first one was not what he intended it to be. So otherwise, he, and, and I guess he did make maybe two baby geniuses. He did. <laughs> okay. Well. That's there a goes cash my theory. Grab. But, you know, anyway, <laughs> I feel like Bob Clark wasn't necessarily a sequels guy, at least at the time. Um, maybe he became a sequels guy because he just couldn't get enough of those baby geniuses. Oh, my goodness. Um, I just see in my notes, I'm going to correct myself. This is the third highest grossing film in Canada. Just really? Just, yeah. The first oh, wow. is uh, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. And mm. then the second one is a French language film, Du Femmes in Or. Those Quebecians. Those Quebec. Um, so the film under the title Stranger in the House was set to make its television premiere Saturday night, January 1978 on NBC's The Saturday Night at the Movies. Two weeks prior to the premiere, the Chi Omega sorority in the campus of Florida State University in Tallahassee was the scene of a double murder in which two sorority sisters asleep in their bed were bludgeoned to death. The killer then went to a nearby room in the house and violently attacked two more co-eds who survived. So a few days before the film was set to premiere on network television, the governor of Florida contacted NBC uh, President Robert Mulholland to request that the movie not be shown due to its all too similar themes uh, as the murders of the sorority sisters had just been done by an unknown madman. Well, that unknown madman ended up being Ted Bundy. <laughs> so you've heard of him. Yeah. And I guess he's probably saw Black Christmas. Yeah. No, he didn't. Hey, he was did. a monster. Ted, Ted definitely did. Yep. <laughs> so, as we were saying a minute ago, uh, there were never a there there were never any sequels to Black Christmas. However, there have to date been two, count them, two remakes, uh, which, in a way, makes Black Christmas its own kind of unique uh, slasher franchise. Um, I think there hasn't been another as as less 
conventional slasher franchise. The only other one I can think of is Prom Night. Because even mm. though Prom Night technically has three sequels to its name and a remake. Second, uh, the sequel is the best. None of, yes. None of them have anything to do with each other except two and three. Three is almost a sequel to two, but it also at times feels like a remake of two. So that that's that franchise we'll maybe eventually talk about, but it's definitely a weird one. And Black Christmas is also weird, but in a much more um, understandable way, because uh, it's very clear that Black Christmas 2006 and Black Christmas 2019 are not intended as sequels or Lego sequels or whatever. They're straight up remakes of, <laughs> yeah. of the original idea. So Black Christmas 2006, there's a movement um, in in the horror community uh, over the last, I'd say, five, five to seven years um, of kind of reappraising and reclaiming this movie. It is definitely a Dimension Films post-Scream mid-2000s entry. So if you kind of know the vibe of, of those movies, you know, we're talking the Scream sequels as well as, uh, oh, the Urban Legend sequels, Valentine, um, you know, uh, uh, that sort of vibe. So it's very nasty. It's very gory. Um, and it is very close to the original plot of, of Black Christmas 74 to the point where it depicts all of Billy's backstory. Oh, and it does no. so in a way that's very literal <laughs> and and not all, but most of what we talked about a minute ago in terms of what we think Billy's backstory might be is in there and and more. There's a scene where Billy bakes Christmas cookies out of his parents' skin. Um, I have heard of the human Christmas you know. cookies. I did not yeah. know that that's what that was. Yeah. Oh. So the problem with Black Christmas 2006 is that uh, it was made by... Glenn Morgan, uh, and um, it was also, uh, there was a little bit of contribution from his uh, writing partner from the X-Files, James Wong. And of course, those two had uh, worked on Final Destination, um, as well as the X-Files. And so uh, what could have been with Black Christmas 2006 is a legitimate, you know, minor, you know, uh, not masterpiece, but minor great uh, slasher revival film. Unfortunately, this movie was made for Dimension Films, which, uh, if you don't know, um, the executives of Dimension were Bob and Harvey Weinstein, and uh, they they did not like the tone of the script. They did not like the film's ending, original ending, um, and there was numerous rewrites and reshoots because, of course, Bob and Harvey knew better, those dicks. And, uh, and of course, and then that means the resulting movie is a complete mess. Like, there's plot aspects that don't make any fucking sense. Uh, there's tonal whiplash all over the place that's not intentional. So I can't say fully that Black Christmas 2006 is legitimately, you know, great or undersung, but it's certainly worth a watch if you like really heavily gory, nasty slashers. The Christmas vibe of the movie is impeccable. Okay. So even if you're just watching for the uh, production design, it's fantastic. And similar to Black Christmas 74, this has a, a not completely stacked, but like... Uh, a notable cast in the sense that um, Katie Cassidy is our final girl uh, and um, Michelle Trachtenberg uh, oh, is yeah. one of the, the girls, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Lacey oh, Chabert. Yeah. Wait a minute. Uh, really? Yeah. And okay. as I already said, Andrea Martin's back as uh, Mrs. Mack. Um, so, you know, it's it's got that value uh, in terms of uh, 
recognizable faces. So yeah, definitely worth a watch, but I wouldn't expect much. I, I feel like I watch it every couple of years just because I love the Christmassy atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The, some of the kills are great, but uh, it definitely <laughs> has some problems. And then Black Christmas 2019 is its own beast. Uh, it too, unfortunately, was the victim of some uh, post-production finagling. In this instance, it was less contentious than um, Glenn Morgan's had been with the Weinsteins. Uh, this was due to Universal Pictures and and Jason Blum of Blumhouse thinking that, you know, well, because this was a very, by the way, this Black Christmas 2019 was made by Sophia Takai, uh, or wait, Sophia Takal uh, and April Wolf. And um, it's a very, very clearly feminist, very contemporary take on the material. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of references to uh, then current pop culture. So it's a very dated movie already, even though it was only three years ago, <laughs> four years ago. Um, but uh, at least it has a point of view. And that point of view is pretty cool in the sense that it is very much like, you know, hey, where does toxic masculinity come from? Uh, there's a really surprising supernatural aspect to the movie that none of the other Black Christmases really have. Mm. In the sense that Black Christmas uh, 74 and 2006 there's like light supernatural aspects, kind of like, you know, like we talked about in Halloween, but nothing ex- as explicit as this in 2019. Mm. There's some neat uh, references to the original uh, in terms of some shots and some um, story elements. Um, and the only unfortunate thing is that it was it was shot to be an R-rated movie. And then uh, Blumhouse and the universe were like, we really want it to be PG-13 because this we want teenage girls to go. Uh, and so it's fairly noticeable in the sense that like, you know, when things hit the fan, people aren't dropping F-bombs like kids, you know, 23 year olds would in this day and age. Um, the kills are are kind of neutered in that way. Yeah. But it 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 has also like a neat Christmassy feeling. Um, and yeah, if you're looking for like a very unabashedly feminist uh, horror movie, you could you could you could do worse. I feel like if you're going to watch either Promising Young Woman or Black Christmas 2019, watch Black Christmas 2019. Funny. These Canadian horror movies, man. Didn't uh, yeah. What was the other one? My Bloody Valentine? Yeah. And yeah. they remade that one with the guy they from did. Supernatural. And it, and what was wild is that, again, My Bloody Valentine didn't get any sequels, even though you could have just put a miner's mask on anybody else. Yeah, the next didn't year, he run know? off anyway? He's like, bye. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he could... <laughs> Be my bloody Valentine, Sarah. <laughs> and you know what? It's yeah. funny. These Canadian movies, why do they hide that they're in Canada? Don't be embarrassed about it. If you watch I know. Black Christmas, try I to count say, though, all the American flags. <laughs> I will say that My Bloody Valentine does a terrible job of hiding its Canadianness. Like, everyone has a hugely thick Canadian accent. So, but anyway, yeah. It uh, is it, weird. It's funny you said Final Girl because we've been comparison, comparing this movie so much with Halloween. And it's funny that people say that it's like the first slasher when just like to point out King Toby Hooper put his slasher, what, six months before this came out or October? Oh, Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre came out just a few months. So I know everyone says that this was the first slasher film, but I mean, you know. Well, and as we talked about with with Halloween, oh, Halloween the too. slasher film was was going to, you know, was going to happen eventually. And it was already kind of in the air. It was already kind of in the culture. You know, this Texas Chainsaw. Final Girl, uh, same thing. Bay of Blood. Yeah. Psycho, mm-hmm. you know, so it's this it's, is the first this this is the first POV camera. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Did you ever see Rope by Hitchcock? <laughs> get off my face. You know, get out of here. Everything's yeah. the first and this and that. And I think it's funny that there's just this little group of movies that everybody is like, this is 
you know, this is the the first final girl. No, she wasn't. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, going off on a little tangent here, but why not? Yeah, let's um, do it. I think one of the aspects of, of film history that's interesting to me is the fact that for many, many years, think about this, you couldn't easily go and stream um, an old movie. You couldn't just rent it. You you had to find a print. You had to find a projector. You had to find somebody playing a print. So the aspect, the idea of like having a, a working, even a working knowledge of film history was pretty difficult at right. the time up until the mid 80s. So I think a lot of these, you know, landmark movies that people like to talk about, like this was the first, this was the first, this was the first, comes from a history of critical thinking and, and um, pop culture writing and just sort of cultural general wisdom that kind of enters the lexicon in terms of, oh, Halloween was the first, even though, as we've shown, kind of wasn't. So I think that we were entering we're entering this new age of of uh, film historians and film critics and cinephiles and and then just fans who know much more than people writing in 1985 did, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, it's 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 not a quite a, like a kill your darlings kind of thing, but I think it's it's something where like it's a reevaluation. And the more people more one studies film history, the more one realizes there isn't it's a spectrum. It's not a nothing was you know, this has changed everything, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I can segue into sad story number three off that. Um, oh, no. Because, you know, so the cult following for this film didn't really start until about 2004 when Internet and stuff and people were, were able to see it. Um, and it was just starting to gather a lot of steam when Bob Clark sadly got killed in a car crash on the Pacific Coast Highway when a drunk driver crossed over the center line and hit him head on. And to make the story even sadder, because it's Christmas, um, his 21-year-old son was in the car as well, and he also died. So that is just, you know, it's a shame he doesn't get to see all the love that people have for it now. Well, he got to see it a little bit, but never you know. mind Black Christmas, but also his other Christmas movie, A Christmas Story, that cult following didn't really ramp up until around that time, too. That's crazy. Because A Christmas Story, when it came out in 83, was savaged by the critics as sort of like, oh, it's some sort of crappy nostalgia comedy. Who cares? Everyone's so mean really... to Bob Clark. <laughs> yeah, they were. We'll begin. I think it's in terms of his career, I don't want to say that I'm his biographer or anything, but it feels like. The reputation that Porky's received was so vile that yeah. it really messed him up for a little bit in terms of in terms of his relationship with uh, audiences and with uh, with critics. You know, in terms of his career, it didn't stop him. You know, he was trucking on. So he had a, by all accounts, I think, a pretty good life and um, was never destitute and you know had a good family, um, always seemed to have a good attitude. Um, but in terms of like his lasting legacy, it is too bad that he was his life was cut short at the time it was, because as of now, you know, these both these films and a couple others of his have become, you know, masterpieces and heredi perennials for people. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So there's there's a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> to take that around. And I mean, I will say like my a couple final thoughts, you know, it just crossed my mind. This is terrible. Peter couldn't have been the serial killer. He was pro-life. So if he would have killed Jesse, would have killed the unborn baby, too. And that does not add up. That doesn't add up. No, his politics would be wrong in that way. Um, and I will say, you know, there are some issues. I mean, like like most films, there's a ton of this that you can look past because it's so good. But there is a few things that could have been done a little better. The logic is a little fuzzy. I do love the axing. It has great scenes, but, you know, it's not Halloween. I, it's like the pre-slasher kind of movie. 
And a movie feels long, even though it's not really that long. And I think that's with the pacing. And I, I kind of like because it feels very real with that. Mm. It's not a documentary, but the ups and downs like the, you know, you just go on this roller coaster. And that, that's what I love it. And you know what? It's OK with me. And I love it for what it is. <laughs> it's a mood. Yeah. It's, a, it's very much a mood movie. And that's sort of that you say it's like that final shot on the house that took eight hours to light. And it's eerie mm. and it's aesthetically pleasing. And it's at the same time with the Christmas lights and the snow and the perfect house. And then you see the horrifying thought of, oh, my God, that dead girl's face has been in that window for three days or two days. And and then they have the winds pick up. And, you know, it just brings me back. And I'm definitely into watching it every year at Halloween. I mean, Christmas. Christ. <laughs> I thought you were, I thought you were going to be uh, alternate. You know, I'm gonna watch uh, this at Halloween. And I'm gonna Halloween watch this at Halloween. I'm gonna watch Halloween at Christmas. I'm a rebel. You can't stop me. I'm, I'm a, a rebel. rebel. Also, my favorite thing is Olivia Olivia Hussey's first lines are "Hello, pardon, who?" <laughs> and I'm like, "How you stop answering the phone like that? I'm gonna come kill you." <laughs> I love your Olivia impression. She's so good. Well, it couldn't have been Peter. He was here with me. Oh, Peter, please stop acting like this. Bob, Phil, answer me now. <laughs> Actually, that, that Please little, answer me. That's where you see her, her star power in that scene where she's just like, answer yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and my final thought is if you have the means and if you have the the right audience, uh, definitely double feature Black Christmas and The Christmas Story because they are just these beautiful. Um, I think they're a great pair. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of, I love it. In terms of not only seeing the parallels, but it brings out it brings out a little bit more of the humor in Black Christmas, and it brings out a little bit more of the cynicism in A Christmas Story. Oh my god! Because that movie is surprisingly cynical at times, so it's great. Speaking of humor, my last favorite, my, my favorite part is when the lieutenant um, calls Officer Nash and is like, "Listen." Or no, he's like, Lieutenant, the calls are coming from in the house. He's like, I'm going to need you to call Jess and I need you to do one thing, which you knew you shouldn't have told him to do this. Call Jess, tell her to get out of the house and whatever you do, absolutely what, do not tell her that the caller's in the house. No problem, sir. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Hi, Jess, you got to leave the house right now. No questions. All right, I'm going to get Phil. The caller is in the house. The killer's in the house, girl. Like, doesn't even wait two seconds. And it is, we haven't seen this, this, this actor or this character freak out at all. He's just pretty dumb. In two seconds, he's like, you gotta listen to me. He's in the house. And you're like, no. And you bet your ass I'm running out of that house and getting the cops. I can't help you girls upstairs. <laughs> there is a version of Black Christmas which you could make from Lieutenant Fuller's perspective in which a co it's not a horror movie. It's a complete farce of him like the straight man detective and his bumbling idiot, you cops. know, Coworker, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who just can't get anything right, yeah. Oh yeah, God, always check the attic. <laughs> always check the attic, or even better, just don't have one. Nothing good happens there. Yeah, and that hospital couldn't even handle getting five, you know, three bodies. Imagine if they had to take all five bodies there. What kind of hospital can it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I love it. I love this movie. It's so great. Recommends. I said it first. You have to go first. I'll do it first. Okay. So my recommendation is 2020s hosts, not to be confused with host, with one, with no S, 
Hosts with an S was directed by Adam Leader and Richard Oakes. And it is on Shudder. So the the plot to this movie is a family falls victim to unimaginable terror when they invite their young neighbors over to celebrate Christmas Eve and accidentally invite a demon into their home, not knowing that the innocent couple have become hosts to a malicious entity. And throughout the night, they terrorize this family of five in unimaginably violent, disturbing ways. Like if you're in for a hardcore horror movie in the terms of blood and violence and murder... This one's it. Mostly, you know, it's a it's a solid. It's not like the best movie, but it's a solid horror movie that works thanks to brilliant timing and the eerie, creepy feeling. And yeah, I mean, it, it evolves into some kind of worldwide supernatural epidemic that's happening. And this is kind of the beginning of it. And it's kind of a play on like how lying to your loved ones can not only alienate them, but it can completely destroy the bonds you have with them and with your family or friends forever. And that's kind of like the underlying, there are layers to this crazy movie. So I recommend everybody, if you want an interesting watch, um, hosts. That's awesome. Uh, my recommendation is something that we've already mentioned earlier in this show, but I will say it again. Uh, Fred Walton's 1979, When a Stranger Calls, is I think another masterpiece of tension in the same way Black Christmas is, where it's a slasher, but it's not. Uh, when a Stranger Calls was made during uh, the time that Carpenter's Halloween was being made and released. So it doesn't have the hallmarks of, oh, we have to rip off Halloween in order to stay relevant mm. in the marketplace. It's a movie that, for its second act, follows the killer. It's not a whodunit. It's something where you find out pretty soon who the killer is and what their whole deal is and why they are the way they are. And it also follows our babysitter, who's played by Carol Kane, which is if you already know, if you only know Carol Kane from her comedic work and, you know, tons of comedies, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Princess Bride and mm -hmm. Adam's Family Values. I mean, it's really eye opening to see her as a dramatic actress. And um, the opening sequence is that urban legend of the calls are coming from inside the house in miniature. It's a masterclass in suspense and tension, very Hitchcockian. And then the rest of the movie is so interesting in the way that it really evolves in such a fascinating and compelling um, manner. So I think it's something to check out. It's something we may eventually talk about on this cast, oh, but yeah. definitely get a, get a head start and, and check it out. <laughs> I love the sequels title, When a Stranger Calls Back. And then isn't the third one like When a Stranger Calls Back Again? <laughs> no, I don't think there's a third one. But, okay. the, but When a Stranger Calls Back is also really good yeah. uh, in the sense that it it becomes, and that, that was, I think it was even made for TV, but like cable TV, but it's Fred Walton's direction again. And um, it's Carol Kane returning as an older version of her character. Uh, now she's like kind of a working with the police and she's kind of a profiler to helping, you know, young women um, uh, recover after being attacked by whoever. Jill Sholin is, you know, our final girl in that movie. Um, and it's again, it, the, the tension that Walton is able to create with his suspense sequences is really great. And I think kind of undersung. Honestly, I feel like people don't talk about him. He's not usually in the conversation of great horror filmmakers, but I think he deserves to be. Yeah, 100%. I Yeah, we'll definitely cover that one. I love that movie, too. Well, we'll be back. We'll yeah. be back with some more holiday offerings uh, in a week or two. I guess so we could just let everybody know what our next yeah, uh, sure. one. So we are going to cover Silent Night, Deadly Night. So everybody watch up. And do not be naughty. All right? Otherwise, you will have Punish. to be punished. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater. Part of the Stranded Panda Network. You can find my work in the show notes, links below. 
Check us out on social media. You can find this show at strandedpanda.com and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to write to us at theater at gmail.com. We're dying to hear from you. See you in your nightmares, Agnes. It's him again, the moaner. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.